All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We got a terrific Tuesday morning show for you today, including at the bottom of this hour, federal conservative leader Aaron O'Toole. Lots to talk about with him this morning, including the possibility of a spring election in Canada, also the political turmoil in the United States. Aaron O'Toole at the bottom of this hour, but we start this morning with COVID in care homes in our province. British Columbia just passed a grim milestone, 1,000 COVID deaths, many of them tragically in long-term care homes for our seniors. Let's discuss with my guests now, Isabel McKenzie, BC's independent advocate for seniors. And I'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show. Thanks a lot for coming on. My pleasure, Mike. Good morning. Good morning to you. This has been such a tragic period of time that we've seen with the number of deaths in care homes what are your thoughts with with especially with uh, the number of fatalities uh, rising so much in the last few months well obviously it's very very tragic mike for the family members for the care teams that have lived with and and worked with these folks some of them for you know a, a good period of time Obviously, um, uh, there's a, a great degree of, of distress out there and sadness out there over what uh, over the deaths that are happening in long-term care from COVID, and really around all of the alterations to daily life uh, in long-term care that have been required through these COVID restrictions, and including the separation of residents from their family members. You know, I spoke to one woman whose whose mother passed away from uh, COVID, and she couldn't be with her mom when when she died. It happened quickly. Her mom was transferred to hospital. She wasn't upset about so much her mother dying of COVID. Her her mother was was you know in well into her 80s, and it was expected at some point. But she was very sad about not being able to spend time with her mom for the 10 months before her mom died. Uh, and that's also a tragedy that we have to acknowledge. Yeah, I want to talk to you about that and how we can do a better job there. Let me let me ask you about um, your support for rapid testing for COVID in care homes, which makes a lot of sense to a lot of people. How do you think that that could uh, help the situation, as, especially when it comes to people who are not showing symptoms of the disease? Do you think the rapid testing, a rapid testing regimen could help reduce transmission of COVID in care homes? I think it could help. I think even more frequent uh, uh, testing, routine testing with the PCR test twice a week, for example, like we do with hockey teams, would also be helpful. I think we have to recognize um, the role that asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic or, you know, I don't realize I have symptoms, um, uh, spread of this uh, disease uh, is happening. And you're not, the whole testing strategy has been based on we don't test you unless you show symptoms. Right. Uh, we might test you if you've been a close personal contact of somebody with COVID. Um, but really, we, we aren't routinely testing people. And you can understand, you can't routinely test 5 million British Columbians every day or every other day. But when we look at our long-term care homes, particularly in the Lower Mainland, where we now have very high rates of community transmission, high rates of positivity, um, we have uh, a significant number of outbreaks, and the outbreaks are spreading uh, within the care home. That and and it is staff. They don't. It's unwittingly done. Um, but clearly, if we were testing staff routinely 
I think a reasonable person would conclude that you're going to catch some of this. Not all of it. Yeah. It's not perfect. It's not a panacea. It doesn't replace uh, PPE. It doesn't replace symptom checking. It doesn't replace any of these things. It is an added layer of protection that I think the circumstances of the last probably four months have warranted. And But as you know, there's been an, a reluctance to embrace that. Yeah. Do you think also that there could be some cases, especially when you're talking about very extremely elderly and frail uh, seniors who may not be very communicative in some cases too, that they may have COVID and staff may not notice it? Like they may not be presenting with, with the symptoms that say like a, a more vigorous younger person might, might show when it comes to an, a frail elderly person. That is certainly possible. We know that um, in older adults with a weakened immune system, the symptoms present themselves as a manifestation of the immune system responding to the, uh, to the, to the uh, disease and, or to the infection. And so older people often don't mount a vigorous uh, defense, and so they don't show symptoms. We'll see right. that. U- right. UTIs are a classic example. You don't often see the temperature and some of the other presenting symptoms. So it's reasonable to conclude that that is also happening uh, with COVID. Yeah, so that's another argument for more increased rapid testing, would you say? I think more routine testing. Um, And uh, rapid testing is one. Um, Obviously, it has a lot of advantages. Um, It it can be done more frequently. It can be done on site. Uh, Most, well, almost all care homes would, would have nursing staff on site who could do that test. Um, and uh, it's not as what we call sensitive as the PCR test, which needs to be sent off to the laboratory, but you compensate for that lower sensitivity by the frequent testing. And I understand that one of the things that's now happened with the PanBio test, uh, which is the one I think we have about, I don't know, 700,000 of those tests in BC now, is it, it was requiring what we call a nasal pharyngeal swab, uh, and now only requires a nasal swab, um, which makes it easier for collection. Um, again, it's not the gold standard, but even the gold standard test is not perfect. Uh, and the question is, it's an added layer, um, just like yeah. everything else we're doing. I really feel for the seniors who are separated from loved ones, and that that was a very compelling story you told about about one woman who was separated from her mom before, before she died. Um, during this lockdown period, are you seeing more antipsychotic drugs uh, being given to seniors in care homes, and do you have concerns there? Uh, the short answer is, uh, yes, we are seeing an increase, and yes, it is of concern to many of us, <clears throat> not just me, obviously. Um, and we're also seeing an increase in the use of antidepressants. It's not as marked as the increase in antipsychotics, but it is there as well. And I think when we uh, look back on this tragedy and we now see the ability to look back on it, uh, we're going to recognize, I think, um, some of the ways we uh, perhaps could have managed things differently in long-term care. I think that when we started, if, if we had envisioned that a year later we would be where we are today with the degree of restrictions we are, we might have... Um, uh, taken a, 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 a different, uh, m- more precise approach in long-term care. One of the things that I think we, we really do need to recognize, and, I, and you do sense where there's still a reluctance to recognize, the absolute um, pivotal role 
that many family members play as essential care partners. Not every resident has a family member who's an essential care partner. That is true. Um, But many do. And what is tragic is that we've separated these people who used to go and visit every day or three or four times a week. You're going to have a difficult time explaining to me how that person is not an essential care partner when they have that degree of contact with their loved one. And they've been reduced to 30 minutes once a week in a common area. Um, I am hoping that with the clarification of who is an essential visitor, what is a social visit, um, that we'll see many, many more essential visitors designated um, as we move forward. Because it's clear that there are a number of family members who are not getting designated essential visitors who, who really do fit the criteria. All right, welcome back. My guest is Isabel McKenzie. She's British Columbia's independent advocate for seniors. Taking your calls on the open line, 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898, toll free on your cell. Carol on the line in Surrey. Hi, Carol. Hi. Hi. Um, thanks for taking my call. Um, sure. Isabel, I'm really curious. My mom lives in Chartwell in an independent living. She's 86 years old. Um the sad part is that she's only been there just a year, and then all of this stuff started happening. So she never really got used to it too much. But they had a um, this is they only had one. They've done really well. Very proud of Chartwell. What they how they've um, kept the uh, COVID out. Um, but they had one staff member test positive. So anybody who dealt with that particular staff member has been in isolation. My mom is one of them. This will be her third isolation because she's had other issues where she's gone to the hospital. The minute you spend the night, you're in 14-day lockdown again. My mom has probably aged 20 years in there so far. Um, They've had a test. They all had their tests. Everything's negative. They're all happy. Nobody's showing signs, all that. Everything's good. Um, Yet they won't give another swab test, and she still has to stay in isolation. Where my sister works in a school, and they can have two swabs, and if both start negative, they can go back to work. So I'm just wondering why they keep, and and Chartwell is saying it's Fraser Health that is doing this, um, why they still have to be in isolation. I mean, she doesn't have to see me, but at least to be out with other residents, you know, and see other people. Right. Like, it's just, it's got her so depressed. It's just, I sometimes I just keep telling my family, I'm taking her out of there. She's got to get out of there, or we're going to lose her. Like, it's it's very hard. Thank you, Carol, for the call. Isabel McKenzie. Yes, and Carol, I feel uh, for your mom and for all of you, I know how stressful it is to, um, uh, to be concerned about your elderly loved ones. Um, and I think you've highlighted one of the challenges, which is a, an inconsistent approach um, around how we're managing um, our outbreaks uh, vis-a-vis testing, um, isolation, etc., some health authorities would be doing follow-up testing. One of the, the challenges with this virus is that uh, it does have this long incubation period, and technically what happens is you can be infected with the virus, we can test you, you're negative, because it's still incubating, then it will, yeah. the viral load will build. So that's why we should be going back in and testing again with the PCR test, actually. Um, and some uh, health authorities, for example, here on Vancouver Island, I know in some care homes, they have been, you know, they go in and do the initial test and then they wait three or four days and they do another mass testing because then they'll catch, you know, if there's other people. 
Um, and I and I think it all comes back to um, yes. I think we will find when we look back on this that we could have managed things differently around how we're dealing with outbreaks because that 14-day isolation in the room uh, has does have a profound um, impact. And I and I think we've not been as um, aggressive and imaginative, if you will in how we can use testing, particularly when you look at other jurisdictions that have used the testing uh, effectively um, to reduce some of these isolation periods. Right. So in this situation that she described with her mom, let's say you have a senior in isolation, but they have two two negative tests for COVID. You think there could be circumstances where they could end the isolation? Well, I think that public health um, could have taken an, an approach um, and and offered some guidance and assistance, particularly for those um, care homes or assisted living sites where the virus never spread beyond one test positive case of a staff person. Um, frankly, um, there's been more spread uh, in these last four months of outbreaks than we saw in our first four months of outbreaks. Right. Um, so the frequency at which it's been held to one case is, has been significantly less. But, you know, I think there are, um, uh, just as we've seen different application of when, how many days without a case it takes to declare an outbreak over, um, you know, that has varied as well. So right. I, I think some firmer uh, direction uh, might be helpful. Just got a couple of minutes left here. Let's go to Teresa on the line in Kamloops. Hi. Good morning. Um, I just have to say that my husband is in a care facility in Kamloops. Um, he went into a deep, deep depression in June because of not being able to see his family. Um, I approached the management and asked if something, tell him that something needs to be done because it's going to get worse. I was granted an exception exception and now I get in to see him in his room one time a week for two hours and it's been just amazing this home thank thank you Teresa for sharing that we just have a, a minute left uh, Isabel McKenzie I mean, there's an example of maybe uh, you know someone who can be helped by getting increased visitation but your thoughts yes I think um, it's very clear that for some of our residents this separation from family uh, will have a profound, has had a profound effect that may not be, we may not be able to reverse. Not all residents, not all residents live in the same town as their family members. Some residents are accustomed to visits from family once a month or, you know, every couple of weeks. Their life uh, has not been as altered. But many of our residents who were getting frequent visits from family members, usually it's one dedicated, you know, it's the spouse or it's the adult children or child or a couple of sisters. Um, that It's almost a year now, Mike, um, that these people have not been able to enjoy right. um, that experience. And during okay. that period of time, a lot of people have passed away of something other than COVID. Thank you for your continued advocacy for seniors in British Columbia. I'm always grateful for your time. Thank you for coming on. Thank you, Mike. All right, this is Mike Smith. Pleased to welcome my next guest now, Aaron O'Toole, leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for coming on. It's great to be with you, Mike. 
Okay, you're doing a virtual cross-Canada tour this week, focusing on British Columbia today. So let's start there. What do you want the people in B.C. to know? Well, I want them to know that B.C. is important to the economic rebuilding of this country post-COVID. We want to see the vaccines flow out faster. But the, the diversity and the strength of the B.C. economy is critical to Canada's success. So I want them to know I wish I could be there in person, but... With the pandemic, I'll be there virtually with the BC Forestry Council, the Tri-Cities Chamber, uh, talking to innovators, employers, getting a sense of things. And when I can travel out there safely, you'll see a lot of me in British Columbia. What are your concerns with the vaccine rollout right now? Well, I wish we had supply. And part of the reason we don't have supply is we did not have the logistics set in place early enough to receive, say, the Pfizer vaccine, which requires extreme cold storage, Mike. So we were asking these questions in in November and, and pushing for a faster, smarter response. We want Canada to do well. Um, and we were worried that the the sort of small number for photo ops before Christmas would give Canadians a sense that there was a huge supply coming. That supply issue is still the challenge. So the provinces need a pipeline of vaccines, whether it's Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca. Um, We lost a lot of time when the Trudeau government uh, partnered with China to develop a vaccine. That was a a misstep, clearly. But we want the country to do well. The vaccine is critical to turn the corner. Okay, last week you criticized the government's decision to give the vaccine to federal prison inmates. What are your concerns there? Well, my concerns are the government... It's not, they're, they're not following their own plan, Mike. So we've got a very finite supply of this vaccine, one of the most important things for our health crisis, our economic crisis. And the government's own plan, which we pushed for, by the way, for it to be published so that Canadians could understand, it's about vaccinating the most vulnerable, the first responders, and essential frontline people that have a risk of exposure. So what finite supply we have should go to nurses. PSWs, physicians, uh, elderly people in long-term care homes where the real outbreaks of the first wave were. If there are extras, that's where they should go. Um, Prisoners will get their vaccine, but this is about priority. I should not get a vaccine right away because of my situation. A lot of healthy people shouldn't. If you're having a plan for prioritization, you have to stick to it 100%. Well, the government's prioritization plan says that, for example, the very elderly should go first, right? So people over the age of 80, for example, would be in the first group. So if you have a a prison inmate, a prisoner who is over age 80, should they not get it just because they're in jail? Well, they're in confinement. Literally, we're talking about confinement, isolation, this sort of thing. It is quite easy to actually secure and and protect people that are already confined by and this isn't about saying prisoners never get it that's what the, yeah. the liberals are trying to suggest this is about if you have a plan you don't deviate from the plan and the the old people the the 80 plus uh demographic this is people in long-term care this is people in hospital settings and the nurses and, and support workers around them because they can be part of the spread so that's got to be where the small number of vaccines we have that's got to be the priority let me ask you about the events in the united states it was just six days ago we saw the storming of the u.s capitol by an, an angry mob of, of trump supporters what are your thoughts on what happened there it was horrific to watch mike you know uh reagan used to call the, the, the u.s democracy the sort of shining beacon on the hill 
uh, to see it rampaged and to see an outgoing president actually encouraging that level of sort of insurrection and lawlessness is is an affront to democracy. Uh, I think it it shocked the entire world. And uh, we need to see that the U.S. do well when there's uh, rise of China, Russia, a lot of authoritarian regimes. We need a strong and democratic United States as our partner and, and ally. What do you think of Trump being kicked off of Twitter? Do you think that's dangerous in any way that uh, big tech companies can silence a politician? Well, there's a difference here. There's free speech, which I think is important. Um, but if you use a platform that's a private sector entity uh, and violate their their terms of engagement, their their rules, uh, it, it it is something that you can be tossed off of because uh, your free speech is not curtailed, just the platform usage is. And I think when when uh, an examination was made that it was being used to incite this type of of, of violence, uh, I think those decisions are made carefully but appropriately should canada designate the proud boys as a terror group we've said to the government we would support uh, their efforts to list any uh, white supremacist group uh, of any type as a terror entity um, if that if that can be you know uh, demonstrated which i think uh, there's a lot of indications that it could here. We are actually the party that have been pushing the, the Liberals for several years to list the Iranian uh, Revolutionary Guard Corps, the RRGC, a vote of parliament said they should be listed. So the Liberals dragged their feet. We've told them already when they start the process, we will support it. Speaking to Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole, do you have concerns about the conservative movement as a whole being tarnished by Trump, including here in Canada? Like I'm looking at some media headlines today here in Canada. The homepage of McLean's magazine right now, for example, this is their lead story right now. Canada is not immune to Trumpism. And the story criticizes you and the Conservative Party for adopting Trump style political tactics. Your thoughts? Well, this is what Mr. Trudeau is trying to do ahead of an election is to to scare and deceive people. Um, there are only a small number of, of people in, in Canada that polls showed over the last few years were supportive of, of the presidency of Mr. Trump. The Conservative Party is totally different from the Republican Party in the U.S. I think Canadians know that. My own personal track record was joining the military to serve this country and defend its institutions and its people. That's why I've been reaching out to new Canadians, Indigenous Canadians, LGBTQ Canadians. I want a strong and diverse Conservative Party to get our economy back on track. We're, we're looking at, at giving a poorer country to our kids, Mike, and that's what I'm going to stand for. Mr. Trudeau, who does not have a good record, is going to try and use the division in the U.S. and bring it here. I think right. Canadians don't want that. Okay, what about uh, Candace Bergen, the, the deputy leader of the Conservative Party, and, and a widely circulated social media photo this week of her wearing a, a Make America Great Again hat? I mean, that's an, that was an old photo, too, correct? Uh, years ago photo, not her hat. Someone gave it to her, posed for a photo. Who do you think sat on this photo for several years to to drop it into the Twitter sphere this week? It's another dis, another example of of the Liberal government's plan not to bring Canadians together to have a better vaccine response or an economic response, 
They want to sow misinformation and divide Canadians. Candace Bergen is a, is a passionate Canadian, someone that publicly denounced what was happening in the United States. So I hope this isn't what we see from Mr. Trudeau, um, yeah. but we're we're prepared to to stand up against that, and I'll put my character on the line alongside his anytime. Okay, according to many news sources this week, Justin Trudeau appears to be getting ready to call a spring election. So according to the Hill Times, Trudeau told the Liberal Board of Directors this week, it looks like a spring election, so get ready. What are you hearing? Well, we're reading that as well, Mike. Uh, There's a cabinet shuffle today that appears totally premised upon getting ready for the election and some of the people that don't want to run leaving. Um, I I find it actually shocking that the Prime Minister of Canada, in the middle of a pandemic, when there are curfews being imposed in Quebec and Ontario likely going to stronger measures today, that he could possibly be thinking of an election it's time for the Liberal Party to start thinking of Canadians and not their own political skin. Are you ready, though, if he, if he does drop the writ in this spring? You ready to go? I, I don't think there should be an election, Mike, but yeah. my military training and even my time in business said you always have to be ready. We're going to be ready with a strong slate of candidates, including in British Columbia, policies that are positive to get our economy moving again. And look, I'm not as well known. I I know that. But when people know my commitment of service, they know where I stand, um, we'll be ready. And we've got great volunteers and we've got more money than the Liberals. So I don't want it. But we'll my job as leaders to be ready for all possibilities. Okay, last question for you. How do you beat this guy? I mean, if you go back to the last election, he was mired in scandal and the conservatives, it appeared, had him right where they wanted him and still came up short. How do you beat uh, Justin Trudeau? We have to save our economy, Mike. The, the Trudeau government was running $40 billion deficits in good economic times, raising taxes on Canadians. They're already looking at taxing your house. They're already looking at raising the GST. And we have high unemployment and capital and jobs leaving Canada. I'm a guy that was middle-class background, served in the military, worked in the private sector. I get things done and I bring people together This is going to be about leadership and vision on who can recover the economy when we have almost a half trillion dollar budgetary deficit. It's not going to be Mr. Trudeau who couldn't manage the economy in good times. It's time for the Conservatives to get the country working again and get our economic house in order. Thanks for coming on today. Anytime, Mike. Hope to be there in person one time. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the public health order in British Columbia now shutting down in-person religious services in our province. A small number of churches in B.C. have challenged this. Some of them have opened their doors to worshipers despite the public health order. Some of those churches have received tickets for breaking the public health order. Now officials from some churches are saying they want to challenge uh, this public health order. They say their rights are being violated. Have a listen to this. We've talked about this issue before on the show. We get lots of calls and interest from listeners on this issue on both sides of it here. Now, have a listen to this. This is a caller on our buzz line uh, talking about the shutdown of in-person religious services. Have a listen. Hi, I'm really disappointed that Dr. Bonnie is keeping the churches shut down, that they're grouped in with social gatherings. They're more than that. If you want to talk about a social gathering, shut down the bars. They're being kept open for economics, I'm sure. 
You go to a bar to be sociable. You can sit at home and have a beer, but not with company. Churches are in a different class, and I am really upset by that. Okay, I've got a lot of calls and emails uh, like that from people saying, why are bars and restaurants open but churches are shut down? I hear a lot from listeners on the other side of it, too, uh, saying that churches should shut their doors during the pandemic. Okay, let's talk about this now with my guest, Paul Jaffe. He is the lead counsel on a court case on this matter, representing some churches in British Columbia. I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Mr. Jaffe, thanks a lot for coming on. My pleasure, Mike. Can you tell me about your court case? Well, uh, last week, um, as counsel, I filed on behalf of uh, three churches, uh, the pastors uh, or, or uh, executive officer of one of the churches, and, and actually um, a protester up in Dawson Creek, yeah. all of whom have received tickets recently for violating, allegedly, <clears throat> the uh, uh, public health orders of, um, uh, in relation to uh, what are called events and gatherings which uh, up until mid-November permitted um, groups of uh, no more than 50 people to assemble for various purposes, and that included uh, in, in-person worship services in the churches. Right. And, um, and, uh, but uh, in mid-November, that was all uh, shut down completely. And, right. uh, uh, you know, it's interesting, Mike, I, <clears throat> I listened to some of your earlier uh, people on the show talking about the uh, huge... Um, implications at a personal level, um, you know, the emotional, psychological, uh, you know, implications of, of uh, banning uh, very uh, well-recognized and effective social networks. Yes. Um, and the churches fit within that. Um, they're very much of a support group in many ways. And um, I want to uh, also uh, mention at the outset that the churches that that I represent in this petition are institutions which have not been indifferent uh, to the health risks and have been fully compliant with the directives that have been issued since the spring in connection with minimizing infection risks. They've right. um, established very serious uh, social distancing protocols within the churches. Uh, they, they, they have contact tracing procedures set up. Um, hefty use of sanitizers. There are no social events after these in-person worship services. Uh, people generally go home. They don't do the coffee thing. Yeah. Uh, so they've taken huge steps and changed, and changed their processes significantly to accommodate uh, what they agree are, are uh, paramount uh, concerns of public safety. Um, yep. So what we say is that in this case, uh, and let, let me just tell you this, that in mid-November, uh, the announcement of the complete shutdown of the churches and the banning of protests, that's another really important part of this uh, petition, uh, was only supposed to be for two weeks. Now, of course, governments, when they introduce uh, sort of these kinds of things, will maybe promote them as temporary. And uh, to their credit, I mean, this is a very difficult area to manage, so I don't fault them for hoping that it would be temporary. But here we are almost two months later, and that right. complete shutdown remains in effect. So my clients feel that there's a need for the courts to address striking an appropriate balance between um, uh, the imposition of uh, policies intended to address uh, public health issues and what we call the, uh, the fundamental freedoms and rights yep. of Canadians. 
And so, uh, pardon, pardon the ramble. <laughs> no, I understand. No, listen, I, I think it's a very compelling case, especially when you, you take a look at the, the constitutional rights of, uh, of Canadians that are enshrined and protected in our country. So, like, if you take a look at the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, are you relying right. on the relying on the re, uh, freedom of religion uh, 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 yeah. article there? Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, Section 2 of the Charter, uh, without getting too professorial here. Uh, Section 2 has has freedom of religion, but it has freedom of conscience, thought, opinion, belief, expression, peaceful assembly, association. All of these freedoms are engaged when governments act in ways uh, that that we say the present government is acting. And again, we're not not personally uh, critical of Dr. Henry. She's got a tough job, man, and it's a moving landscape. Of the, but um, the law can be a very, very blunt instrument at times, and, and um, the whole reason the Charter of Rights and Freedoms exists is so that people who suffer some sort of injustice because of, uh, of, of uh, government powers can hold governments accountable in the court and have them justify why it is that the rights of these particular individuals right. can be infringed. And, and that's what we're trying to do is, as fairly as we can is put these constitutional issues before the court. What about when you have uh, an official state of emergency, which we have here in British Columbia because of the pandemic? Does that arguably override uh, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms Protection on, on freedom of religion? Because there's always limits on these freedoms, right? So, I mean, when you, when you, have, yeah, when you have a state of emergency, does that override the religious freedoms? Well, that would be, of course, the overarching... Uh, uh, focus of attention in the courts, but um, yeah. the way the charter works, and it, it was carefully uh, drafted to, I think, create this particular dynamic, is that once people show that their fundamental freedoms have been infringed, the onus then shifts to government under what's called Section 1 in the Reasonable Limit Clause of the Charter, to show that these, the infringement is justified and then, quote, a reasonable limit prescribed by law and demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society. So, for instance, right. the challenge I think the governments will have here is to say that, well, pubs and restaurants and Costco, which has a thousand people a day through it, and other uh, public transit and schools and other activities in society which aren't shut down, uh, don't constitute the same risk that a bunch of folks in a church yeah. who are socially distancing, contact tracing, and hand sanitizing do. And, of course, that, that would be, I think, an impossible argument for the government to, uh, to make successfully under Section 1. So once we show uh, in a charter case that the right is a prima facie infringement, the onus shifts over to the government to prove that it's right. justified. And I, I think, honestly, um, not, not trying to be too bullish on the outcome here. I think it's a really tough road for the government to hoe. And, you know, um, um, anyway, that's the, the nature okay. of the case. I, I, I'm keenly interested in it, for sure. I'm speaking to Paul Jaffe. He's the lead counsel here in, in a court case brought by some churches in British Columbia. They're opposed to the shutdown order, uh, shutting down in-person uh, worship. Let me play this here for you, Paul. This is uh, Melissa Skelton. She is the Anglican Archbishop in Metro Vancouver. She was an earlier guest here on the show. And I asked her, what do you think about... Uh, some churches, the small number of churches that have been defying the public health order and opening their doors to worshipers. And here's what she said. Well, I'm very saddened and alarmed because, of course, the action of one church or one individual affects us all. 
and uh, there's no more we are all individuals and <laughs> and are in it by ourselves this what this pandemic has certainly taught us is that we are deeply interconnected and the actions of everyone affect everyone else so i'm very sad that they felt that they should do this and and i'm also sad for the provincial health officer and her staff you know who are who are really doing their best and and re- seek to support them Okay, that's uh, Melissa Skelton, the Anglican Archbishop there. Uh, most churches, of course, have, have gone along with, with the order, and, and many of them say that they, they support the order as well. W- would you say it's a minority of churches that, that want to open, or would, what are your thoughts on that? You know, I haven't really uh, surveyed the landscape that carefully uh, as to all the churches in D.C. I, I can say, though, I've spent considerable time... Uh, sort of addressing the circumstances of the churches that I act for. And uh, I would agree with uh, Melissa, who says that uh, a few, a few uh, bad apples can spoil the bunch. Uh, my clients are by no means bad apples. These folks have, very, have been fully compliant since the spring, since March, when the right. alarms first sounded on this pandemic. Uh, these churches have taken huge steps towards ensuring um, uh, compliance with all, with all of the guidelines, um, so I, I can't really say, Mike, that I've, I've sort of studied the, all the churches in B.C. I am aware, uh, just through the news, that uh, one or two of them have been problematic. Um, but, um, but when one looks objectively at the, at the risks posed by my clients, uh, compared to, for instance, just uh, Costco's and Walmarts and restaurants and pubs, uh, the other activities of, sci- of society that remain intact, uh, I don't think you could find an epidemiologist on the planet who would think that my clients uh, pose any sort of significant risk in the context of everything else. When does your case go to court? Well, unfortunately, nothing moves quickly in the courts. We filed yeah. last week. Um, the respondents, the, the AG and uh, uh, public health officer, have uh, theoretically three weeks to respond, at which point we can uh, file some reply material and uh, set down a hearing. Um, uh, we would like to do that as soon as possible yeah obviously uh but um uh, at this juncture it remains unclear hopefully okay. this spring following it with keen interest thank you for coming on today to talk about it well thank thank you for taking an interest mike this is the mike smith all right, welcome back to the show. Does the Granville Entertainment District need a makeover? Some people love how it is. Others say it needs a brand new look. Well, a development proposal was leaked over the weekend. It would breathe new life into the 800 block of Granville Street. But at what cost? Our show contributor, John Jang, can tell us more now. John. Hey, good morning, Mike. I think most of us would tend to agree that the Commodore Ballroom and the Orpheum remain two of Vancouver's most iconic concert venues. So what would you say if I told you that a brand new development proposal along Granville Street could possibly impact those two historic buildings? Now, before you sharpen those pitchforks, uh, let's connect with Aaron Chapman. He's a Vancouver historian and author. You've probably read his work by now, such as Live at the Commodore and Vancouver After Dark. Aaron, always a pleasure connecting with you. Great to speak with you, John. Good morning. So what was your reaction when you saw this development proposal that was uh, leaked over the weekend that would see this dramatic change to the 800 block of Granville Street? Well, it's an interesting proposal. We haven't seen all the details yet. These uh, seem to be sort of the leaked uh, sort of pictures of, of the proposed development and whatnot. So there's a lot we maybe don't know, but it's it's interesting because perhaps, you know, I, I speak at a lot of 
history and heritage events and, and talk about the protection of, of, of you know important history and heritage of Vancouver. And uh, somebody might think initially with a development like this, I'd be dead against it. Uh, I, and not so in the case. I, I'm I'm uh, I'm very impressed with the uh, with what the development is. It's a essentially what's what's being proposed is is a, a construction of a build, building over top, almost over the roof of the Commodore and the Orpheum and that whole block of of 800 Street Granville. But what's really sort of detailed, and you can look at the drawings online, of course, um, is, is a pretty fascinating and, and pretty interesting uh, development there. I, and I think that ultimately will will really benefit. The neighborhood. And there's a few reasons why. Uh, first of all, it increases. Um, it doesn't do anything to you know heritage-wise or, or, or anything negative to the Commodore or the Orphan. In fact, it expands their spaces a little bit um, in, in an interesting way, and also gives the Orpheum some um, rehearsal room. So right now, the, the Vancouver Symphony Orchestra really rehearse on that stage, and they have blocks of time up through the course of the year that they're rehearsing there that allow. The, the, the stage can't be used by a touring band, so there's a, there are a lot of dates at the Orpheum that are closed because of that. This advantage is it opens up that stage so the symphony can be rehearsing and working on what they, they're doing while still leaving that stage open. So the Orpheum would be be able to be accessed a lot more uh, for concerts and by the public that way, and I think that's a good thing. Um, it's, a, it's a huge development, and anybody that's willing to make that kind of investment in downtown, I think it makes for, you know, it needs to be heard out. And let's face it too that, that what's happening what's happened in Granville Street in the last sort of several years is Granville Street's taken a bit of a beating, I think, uh, to us. Certainly, no less this past year, of course, with COVID, it's, it's robbed. You know, the, those those places have been closed. Um, but uh, I think with a development like this, it, it it brings a lot of vitality back to that section of Granville Street. I think some of the major criticism people have toward this development proposal is that we have this knee-jerk reaction because whenever you bring up the words Commodore. Orpheum and then change, people panic and start thinking worst case scenario. But as you explained, these changes wouldn't necessarily hurt either of these venues. It would actually help them operate more successfully in the future. I think so, and I think that's key. And and you know what's we're, we don't have all the information yet about the whole the whole plan, as as I say. But what's been shown so far is really actually it'll increase uh, you know the workability of some of these venues. Even just some things that you don't ever see when you go to the Commodore. A lot of people don't know. That the production office, that the people who operate those shows, that's run out of a room that was initially a broom closet. There's not a lot of space for that kind of stuff because most of the, you know, the Commodore is that famous dance floor everybody loves and, and the stage, you know. So the people who work those shows don't have a lot of room to do sometimes what they need to do. Uh, so some of those changes the audience, audiences, particularly the Commodore, would never even see. Um, but with the, you know, there's some great aspects with, you know, some of the the LED wall, the that they have at the, proposed at the corner of uh, Granville and Robson that almost would sort of turn it into sort of a Times Square ticker tape kind of thing that, uh, and a lot of, it would bring a lot of street sort of vitality to around that area too. And, and, you know, in connection with the building that's being done across the street by Cineplex, the rec room building that you can read about as well, between those two things, it, it's going to attract a lot, I think it would attract a lot of new people down to Vancouver, you know, what, or down to Granville Street. One of the arguments that you often hear about Granville Street is just, it's sort of 19-year-olds getting drunk for the first time down at the clubs down there. I think because when they started the, Van- the Granville Entertainment District, they, the city didn't necessarily look at the kinds of things that make the differences between the kind of liquor licenses they were they were handing out, or just they were giving them out to seemingly you know everybody just to sort of push all the clubs onto that street. Um, what you had was then just kind of all the same thing. This brings a little bit of sophistication because. Not only are you going to have that rec room building across the street, which has also a, a number of different things for really people of all ages, but it brings a sophistication because of some of the restaurants 
and some of the spaces they're proposing above it, as well as the way that they're doing it, that, uh, you know, it hits the sun and the, at, the, at, the, at that part of the, you know, the day on that side of the street in just a great way. I think it would be a great summertime, you know, location for people. So there's a lot to, there's a, my, what I say, and people have asked me about this development a lot in the last few days since that, since it's been announced or, or since that, the, the information's come out, is that there's a really a lot to like about this. And I know in Vancouver sometimes we have an attitude about developers that they're just sort of, they're out to get us a little bit, you know. And there's lots of reasons for that. I think there's, there's lots of things that have happened with some developers in town that uh, has caused friction with, with uh, people here you know, and, and people of us, with us living here in the city. Um, but this, you know, I think, you know, Bonas, is, the, the developers in this, in this uh, occasion, they're, they're, they're local people. This isn't some offshore company proposing this. These are people who are, uh, are born and raised in Vancouver, and they've, done, they've just done a great job over at the Hollywood Theater in Kitsilano there that opened up last month. I don't know if people have had a chance to get in there yet, but it's amazing what, what they've done. So I think, this, uh, I think what's being proposed needs to be looked at and, and, uh, and carefully considered for sure. On that note, do you feel that Vancouverites have a very traditional position with architecture? We love our historic buildings. We can't get enough of them. We're not always so hot about new modern designs like the one proposed here, and yet we still love the Vancouver Public Library. I, you know, there's some people just don't like change, and I think there's I think there's that to be said. Um, you know, we have we're always sort of arguing about architecture in Vancouver in an interesting way. We we complain that the the buildings are sort of just oh every this is made glass and concrete, and then when somebody comes along and builds, you know, Vancouver House that, that sort of twisted uh, building down in uh, down by Burrard, uh, there people complain about that. It's too it's too abstract. It's too much for them. So there's, there's always this constant thing, even in terms of our condo world. It's interesting to look at the history of the city in that regard, because when the West End started having changing from single-family homes in the 1950s, in the 1960s, when they started building apartment buildings there, you read the, the media reports at the time, and people complain about these, these, these three-story or four-story apartment buildings where you, who knows who you're living next to, and there's no, there's no yard for you, and there's maybe no place to park, really, significantly. You know, and, and now we look at those old West End homes, uh, you know, those apartment buildings as, as sort of little treasures as, as now and more and more, there, there are more and more towers going up there. So we, we have a, you know, sometimes we have a, a narrow view of, of some of these things. And, and we're always going to argue about architecture and things. But, you know, uh, what's being proposed when you look at, the, the, you know, this development, it's not really any different than essentially many of the other sort of downtown buildings necessarily around it. It's, I know, you know, it's, it's, it's not out of that same category, maybe, as the, what you see the front of the TELUS building on Georgia Street or or something like that. It is modern. It is new. And, uh, but, the, you know, there's a lot of people in Vancouver that wish Vancouver never would have changed since 1974. And, uh, you know, I'm one of those people that, that even though I believe in the history and the heritage of the city, I believe that there is, is room to develop and as long as when it's done right. And when it's done with the right sort of concessions and, 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 uh, and viewed uh, with what's best for the city. And I think, you know, what's being proposed with this is, is, is a, a very impressive uh, a plan in, in itself. He is Aaron Chapman, historian and author. Check out his work such as Live at the Commodore and Vancouver After Dark. No one who is more connected to what the Vancouver downtown scene is really like. Aaron, appreciate you giving us some time here today. Thanks, John. Have a good day.